Let me ask you to open your Bibles to Psalm 73 and follow along as I read. I'm actually reading from a Bible that's not the one in your pew. So it depends on what's in your hand, whether this sounds exactly the same. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of of the wicked for they have no pangs until death their bodies are fat and sleek they are not in trouble as others they are not stricken like the rest of mankind therefore pride is their necklace violence covers them as a garment their eyes swell out through fatness their hearts overflow with follies they scoff and speak with malice loftily they threaten oppression they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. I'm going to stop there and ask you to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, We confess this to be the word of God. We confess ourselves to be those in need of the word of God and the work of your spirit in our midst. And we confess ourselves as wholly unable to do that. We appeal to you to use your word in our lives. Overcome the obstacle of unbelief. Overcome the obstacle of our sin and stubbornness. Make our hearts tender to your word and encourage our faith in Christ today. I pray for that in Jesus, our Lord's name. Amen. Well, I had an interesting experience happen to me the other day. I was at our men's prayer at my church uh, down in Williston. And, and one of my brothers, a very dear brother, uh, said something to me. Well, he said it in prayer. We're in a little prayer circle. And this brother uh, is a man who... Uh, like lots of people I know, tends to use from time to time cliches. And I'm confessing my own weakness for not really liking to hear cliches uh, because of what they are, right? Just, I, I, so I struggle. It's, that's my problem. You don't, have to, you don't have to think I'm right about that. I'm not right. But so this, this brother said a cliche in the context of our prayer circle. And then I'd heard him, I'd heard him say before, and he said, it's some, the cliche was something about being overwhelmed by grace and hoping never to recover. And I thought, yeah, okay, I, uh, yeah, I've heard that before. You've said that before. Uh, but, but afterward, I was reflecting on it. I really was. It was, it was making me think. And I, I realized that there was, there was a profound truth in what my 
my brother was saying, and it was a truth that, that bears repeating. And I went through this little exercise in my head. This may just reveal my own mental instability and schizophrenia, but I was sort of having this dialogue in my head in which I said, you know, hoping never to recover. And I said, well, why don't you tell me something new in my head? I didn't say it out loud. And, and then in my head, he said, well, why don't you learn what I've told you? And, and of course, I'm only talking to me, but it, it, still, it still took me back because I realized there was something there that I, I, needed, I needed to learn. I needed to hear it because I needed to learn it. Now, why would I even bother telling you that story except that that all comes in the context of Psalm 73, which I believe is more than a little bit like that experience that I had. And really, it, for me, it's, it's like that in, in more than one way. It's like that for me because Psalm 73 is very, very familiar to me. It just happens to be a passage that I've studied and studied and preached and preached again. Uh, and I'm not bragging. I'm just saying I'm an old man. And, and I've, been, I've handled this psalm many times. Um, uh, but I'm sure there is something here that I still need to learn. Uh, but I'm also suggesting that this psalm is an example of what it is I'm talking about. Uh, because the psalmist leads out by saying something that is just about an Israelite cliche. Surely God is good to Israel. Everybody knows that. Every Israelite knows that. It's like you'd want to say, well, why don't you tell me something new? And, and I'm wondering if that's our response to it, if we're like the psalmist, if there's still something that needs to be learned from that cliche. So I'm, I'm wondering about you. Do you live as though it is true? Surely God is good to Israel. Do, do you even grasp what it means to say that? God is good to his people. How is God good to them? Why is God good to them? What is the good that God has in view? I think there may be something here for you today that you may have heard, but maybe you haven't learned, or you need to learn more than you've learned it already. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you're outside of Jesus Christ, the message of this psalm is urgently for you. There's absolutely something here that maybe you haven't heard, but surely you need to learn. So I want to invite all of you to enter into this psalm with me that we've started reading. The theme of the message, I've put it on an outline in your bulletin, if you're one of those bulletin outline kinds of people. Uh, and the theme of the, the message is that knowing Christ as the Savior of sinners and the treasure of heaven enables believers to endure the prosperity of the wicked and resist the apparent futility of pursuing godliness. So let's look at the first, the first part together, the first 15 verses. We, it starts out with what I call the cliche, but let's call it a, a confession of faith. Uh, Truly or surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now there's a little translation thing there. Uh, th that first word, surely, truly, it's a little, there's a little Hebrew word there that sometimes they don't even translate because you're not sure how to take it. Sometimes it means but uh, you could rightly read this verse, but God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And when you hear, but, you think, well, what, what came 
what came before it. And I think that's the sense here. It is almost as if you can see this psalmist, he's looking around at life, and it's clear from what he's about to say, he doesn't like what he's seeing, and he, but he's saying to himself, but, but God is good to Israel, to those who are pure, to those who are pure in heart. God is good to Israel, that's his confession of faith, but the problem he's got, of course, is that he's making these observations. They're not inaccurate observations. He's seeing things that are contrary to the faith that he's confessed. You, you, look, you look there through, through uh, verses 2 and 3 again. He says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You get that? He brought him up short when he just looked around. The world that he saw didn't particularly look like God was good to Israel. Maybe the world that you, as you see it doesn't look like God is good to his people either. What was it that he saw? Well, I, I've labeled it as the ease and the excess of the wicked. That's all that stuff he says in verses 4 to 9. They have no pangs in their death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They're Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue, tongue struts through the earth. So he says, these wicked people that I see around me, their lives are easy. When he says they have all this fatness, you shouldn't, you read that as a modern person. You go, oh, they're not healthy. No, no, no. He says fatness. He means they have luxuries. <laughs> they, have whatever, they have whatever they want. And they don't show any signs that God is striking them. God's not doing anything to them. And, and they're proud. They don't just live high. They live proud. And they get away with it. And, and they abuse other people, and they get away with it. They even speak against God, and they get away with it. And, and what's more, other people listen to them. That's what he saw. That's where you pick it up in verse 10. He sees the influence of the wicked. Therefore, it says, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high. Now, again, there's a little translation decision that has to be made. It says his people, his people turn back to them. So is the his people the people of the wicked man that we're talking about? Or is the his people God's people? You can't be 100% sure. It kind of doesn't matter because whoever they are, the point is that they're drawn after these wicked people and the proud things that they say, and they follow them, and they, they fall into their thinking. Now, I happen to believe that he is talking about God's people being drawn in in an uncritical way. They find no fault in them. They're looking at the wicked and go, well, that life seems to be working for them. I ought to go their way. And, and besides, it doesn't look like God is watching anyway, you see? How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? It sure doesn't feel like God's watching. So what difference, what difference does it make? I wonder if the world that he's talking about sounds to you at all like the world that you live in. 
when you look around, you see what's going on. We could have a long conversation about that, couldn't we? What our world looks like. But, but you have to couple that observation. It's not even, that's not even the worst of it yet. You couple that observation with this other opinion that he holds. You go down to verse 12. He says, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. That's what he sees that's really bothering him. The wicked are always at ease. And my efforts at godliness, that's what he means when he says, you got clean, a clean heart and pure hands. The Bible talks about that a lot for the righteous man. Clean hands, pure heart, clean heart, pure hands. All my efforts at godliness have gotten me nothing. It's been in vain. It doesn't seem to me like God is for me. And in fact, it's kind of worse than nothing because he feels like, I feel like I'm the one that's being rebuked all the time. And I'm the one that's trying to be good. And I just feel like, man, this is not working. And, and one final problem is in verse 15. He's suffering in silence. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So this guy was shrewd enough to know. He, he figured out that however dark his thoughts were, these are dark thoughts, that putting those things into words would just be worse talking about that stuff he couldn't go around talking about these dark thoughts these dark feelings with other people who belong to God because he says I would have betrayed them I would have betrayed the generation of your children he said, in other words it, it wouldn't have been good for them at all to hear what I'm thinking it would have been bad for them to hear what I'm thinking but the problem is I'm thinking it but what's he supposed to do the cliche, truly, surely, but God is good to Israel. It's just kind of landing flat on this guy. It's not ringing true. So in his, to him, it's, it's like all cliches. It's just things that people say that didn't mean much. But we're going to find out that God helped him to learn what it means. Pick it up again in verse 16. And let's read a little bit. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Oh, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. 
So you hear what he's saying. Everything changed for him. This worship leader of Israel. When he came into the sanctuary of God. And so it's right here that we have to slow down. And consider what's really being said there in verses 16 and following. Or we might, we might actually miss or lose the meaning, which bears on the meaning of the cliche. So he's telling us that he got his mind right about who is truly prospering and who is not. He's telling us that he suddenly became aware of the fact that the wicked are facing judgment from God. And how did he become aware of that? What's going on? What does it mean when he says, this happened until I came into the sanctuary of God? What does it mean to come into the sanctuary of God? How does coming into the sanctuary of God change your perspective? Well, now the sanctuary of God is a reference, of course, to the temple in Israel. But walking into a building is not going to change anybody's perspective about anything. It was church work that way. It doesn't work that way, does it? No, what was eye-opening and what was heart-enlightening to him was the meaning behind the sanctuary. That temple, that temple stood as the place where God located himself in the midst of his people. To come into the temple is to come to him. And what's more, that temple, that sanctuary was part of a comprehensive revelation from God about who may draw near to him and how they may draw near to him. That's what's going on in there. Bound up with the temple, the presence of God was the entire sacrificial system. The message of the sacrificial system was to say that nobody can draw near to God because nobody is righteous. Everybody's a sinner. The fact that God had chosen Israel to be his own, we need to be clear, was manifestly not because of how good they were. He didn't call them to be his own and call them to himself because they were good. To say that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, is either to tell a lie because nobody's pure in heart, or it is to reveal a glorious truth, namely that God chooses to be good to his people and he takes steps to make them pure in heart by his doing and not by their doing. He does not receive them because they are pure in heart. He makes them pure in heart because he receives them. We must grasp that. So the sacrificial system stood as a daily and relentless reminder that the people are not pure in heart. That's what the New Testament teaches us. That's why you keep sacrificing over and over again. Because you're not pure in heart. These sacrifices don't cleanse the conscience. It stood as a relentless reminder that God had provided a way for his people to be cleansed from sin through the imposition of a substitute, through a sacrifice. 
So you see the perspective of the sanctuary is one that levels the playing field. It makes you realize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so when he got his mind right, he sees that God actually punishes the wicked. It's it's not the fact that God punishes the wicked that is good news to him or to us. It is the fact that God punishes the wicked except in the sanctuary where my punishment falls on another. And that's good news to me. And this man got his eyes opened to that fact. So the question becomes, in his feeble mind, not why do the wicked prosper, but why has God not destroyed all the wicked starting with me? Why hasn't God done that? And the sanctuary perspective reminded him God is going to destroy all the wicked. Their prosperity is fleeting. Their judgment is upon them. They all perish, but there is salvation. There is forgiveness. There is escape from the judgment of God. And so you see, it's right here at this juncture in the psalm that the gospel really comes into view. It's right here that we start to see how this psalm, just like all the psalms and just like all the Old Testament, is really about Jesus Christ and his gospel. Because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the sanctuary. What is Christ but the place where God meets man through a sacrifice? And a sinful man is brought near to a holy God. That's Jesus Christ. That's what the sanctuary and the temple system of sacrifice foreshadowed and typified. Jesus Christ died on the cross as the sacrifice for his sinful people. He came into this world in order to step into the place of his own people. He stood for them. He stood before God and he accomplished all righteousness. He lived a sinless life under the law of God and he rendered to God the perfect obedience that righteousness demands. And his last and greatest act of obedience was to die in the place of his people. That was Christ's obedience. His covenant-breaking people, the sinners who deserve God's wrath, were under the threat of death. All mankind sits under the same threat of death. But Jesus stands in the place of his people. And he dies the death that they deserve. His death pays the penalty that their sin incurs. He earns God's favor for them, both by paying the debt that they owe for disobedience and by fulfilling the debt that they owe in perfect obedience. We sing Jesus paid it all, and we really mean all, both sides of that coin. And so the sanctuary experience is coming to see, first of all, that God is indeed going to punish all the wicked and nobody is getting away with what it looks like they're getting away with. And what is more, it is coming to see that I, as a sinner, deserve to be just where those wicked people are, facing judgment, but on account 
of the grace of God through Christ, my substitute. I am ushered into God's presence and I'm spared from his wrath. Oh, this is a double realization that he got that we need. They get what's coming to them. And praise God, I do not get what's coming to me. Jesus got what is coming to me so I can have what's coming to him. That's the realization of the sanctuary. That's the gospel salvation that was always in play in Israel through the types and shadows represented by the temple and the sacrificial system. That's the gospel salvation that is now made plain in Jesus Christ and preached plainly and openly. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save his people and he is coming again to judge all the wicked who are not his people. That perspective on God's judgment and also on God's redemption of sinners is what changed everything for this psalmist. First, he saw the judgment. Look again at verses 17 and 20. He saw that all the wicked are going to perish. And then he saw the redemption in verses 21 and 22. Because I was like a beast, he says, which is symbolic for being an enemy of God. I had a bitter heart, he says, which is a sign of antagonism toward God. But he says, you pricked my heart. I take that in the positive sense. When I didn't deserve it, he says, you brought me to yourself. You made yourself my counselor. You guided me and caused me to see you, yourself, as the very treasure that I seek. Listen to how his heart changed with a sanctuary perspective and, and a redemption perspective. Because rather than envy the wicked and their earthly treasures, he came to find the treasure of heaven. Pick it up in verse 23 where we have not read yet. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I'm continually with you, O oh God. He's, even though I'm a sinner who doesn't deserve to be with you and whose presence you ought not to abide, nevertheless, by the redemption that you have provided through the sanctuary, I am with you. And I am with you intimately, he says. You, you guide me in this life and you promise me a life with you forever. That's what you receive me in the glory means. This Old Testament psalmist had a vision of eternal life with God. He understands that through God's salvation, he is destined to live in the glorious presence of God forever. And very pointedly, I hope you see it, this man now sees that what makes heaven desirable is the fact that God himself is there. Whom have I in heaven 
but you. He says, there's nothing on earth that I want. Because when I have you personally in heaven, I have everything. His mindset has changed quite a bit from being envious of the wicked, hasn't it? He's come a long ways. He says, now, it doesn't matter if my heart fails. It doesn't matter to me if my flesh fails. Because, indeed, everybody's heart and flesh is going to fail at some point. But the one who knows the Lord endures forever, and he sees that. God is the strength of that person. Jesus Christ is the strength of that person. And the Lord himself, he says, is the portion of that person. That, that language of portion means he's the inheritance that is apportioned or allotted, that's set apart for you, his portion. So God in Christ is what you get when you're saved. You get transformed into a glorious image of God and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ and permanently joined with him to enjoy him forever. So nobody who knows anything could want more than that because there isn't anything more than that to want. And anybody who thinks that there is more than that is just somebody who doesn't know how to think yet. That's, that's everything. The person who thinks that's not everything is somebody who hasn't had their perspective changed yet by coming into the sanctuary of God. You have to come to faith in Christ and grow in that perspective. So here's the summary message in the last two verses. For behold... Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell, tell of all your works. And so he says, when I say surely God is good to Israel, I know what that means. It means that the unfaithful, which you need to read that as a, believer in Christ. You need to read that as those without faith. The unfaithful, they perish away from God. But the faithful, read that as those with faith in Christ. They find their good in God's presence. He says the nearness of God is my good. Surely God is good to Israel the nearness of God is my good. And that's what I have when I come into the sanctuary. That's what you have, believer, when you come into Christ and meet him where he receives you and pays for your sins and welcomes you and changes you. You have the nearness of God and that is the good that God is to Israel. The Savior himself is the good. He's the treasure of heaven. Now, what do you do with the truth of a psalm like that? What do you do with a cliche like that if you learn it? Well, the first thing, of course, the first and most important use to make of Psalm 73 is for you to come to possess the treasure of heaven. Because if you're here today, and I get to say this, Hunter has to decide how how he wants to say it. I just, I just say it. 
If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, God is counting you among the wicked that are talked about here. Never mind whether you feel like you're wicked or not. It's not relevant. Never mind whether you feel like you do at least as many good things as bad things or not. It's not relevant. God has made it very plain that all people everywhere have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one. Now you may be thinking God couldn't be very upset about your sin in view of the fact that your life is going pretty well for you right now. Don't fail to listen to this psalm writer, Asaph. Take no comfort at all in the fact that God Almighty has up to this point withheld the judgment for sin that you deserve. That is a fleeting reprieve. Don't falsely conclude from that that he's not angry over your sin and he won't do anything about it. That'd be a a fatal mistake for you to make. The gospel perspective behind this psalm is that all those who are outside of Christ are facing certain destruction. So if that's you, then you're in a slippery place and God plans to bring you to ruin. He plans to wake you up abruptly out of your sleep and sweep you away in terror, to use the language of the psalm. Judgment awaits you, and it may fall on you at any moment. But the good news for you is that the offer of the sanctuary is in play here today. Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners like you. Jesus is here to make sinners meet God on the basis of his atoning work. He's receiving sinners who up until now have been like beasts before him. He's offering a new mind and a new heart and a new life to everyone who believes. That's who the people of God are. They're the ones who believe. They come into the sanctuary and they believe. They come to Christ and they believe. So I'm asking you, my friend, who is still outside of Christ, will you believe? Will you believe? If God is saving you just now, it will be seen in you having a change of mind. It really will. You will come to understand that you've been like a beast before God. You'll come to see that you deserve the fate of the wicked. And you'll come to see with amazement that God is offering to you the treasure of heaven, a relationship with himself through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the offer. So I call upon you, my unbelieving friend, to call upon the name of the Lord. Come to Christ. The Bible says whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I say turn from your sins. Awaken from your slumber by the grace of God. And come to Christ. What what else can we do with this psalm besides come to Christ? Well, we can seek and you, my brothers and sisters, ought to seek. The increase of a sanctuary mind. One of the interesting things about this psalm is that I'm not persuaded at all 
that we're being shown a conversion experience of this particular psalmist. There's no doubt that the experience he had is a picture of what a conversion looks like. We move from being beasts before God to seeing the beauty of his salvation and desiring him and then having him. But I'm saying to you that getting this kind of mindset, what I'm calling a sanctuary mindset, is not a one and done proposition. The New Testament doesn't present it to us that way. It's the kind of thing in which we need to increase. That's why I listed a couple of verses in your bulletin. Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, Paul's praying. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now that prayer that Paul's praying is prayed on behalf of people who are already believers in Christ. He's praying for a church. They've already been enlightened. They already know the hope of his calling. They've already been shown what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance because they've been given that eternal perspective, that sanctuary perspective. But they don't have as much of that as they need to have. This is the language of increase, the way Paul is praying. You need to grow to understand more and more what God is doing in his salvation of you, of us. In, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays that the believers would come to a deeper grasp of the love of God in Christ. To the end that they would be filled up to all the fullness of God. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, he famously urges the believers in Rome, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You can almost apply that to Psalm 73. You can almost lay it over Psalm 73. He's saying, I'm urging you, stay at your pursuit of godliness, clean hands, pure heart, but have your thinking renewed so that you understand the good that I'm doing and how you're serving me. You need to grow in this perspective. That, that's what growth in grace, growing in salvation looks like. It looks like having your mind renewed so that you think right. You grow in thinking about life the right way. You grow in thinking about God the right way and what he's doing. You even grow in thinking about yourself the right way. So what, what I'm calling a sanctuary mind and calling on you to increase in is a mind that sees all of life through the grid of the gospel. It's a mindset that interprets what's going on based on the teaching and promises of God in Christ. A mind that's informed that way, brothers, sisters, can accept the prosperity of the wicked. That mind knows they're not getting away with murder. They're not getting away with anything. God brings all the wicked down in terror and judgment. All the books get balanced. It knows such a mind, certainly knows there's no warrant 
for envying the wicked. Because they're the ones in a slippery place. You're the one standing on the rock. And, and again, a mind that's informed that way, a sanctuary mind, does not despise and despair the efforts in life to pursue godliness and maintain purity. God calls his people to godliness and he empowers his people for godliness. That, that is not an onerous demand by God, but it's the keeping of his promise to make us like Jesus. It's not in vain, in other words, that you keep your heart pure and your hands innocent as the psalmist was tempted to think till he got his mind right. No, it is evidence of your upward call and your promised transformation. Your increase of godliness is reassurance from God of your destiny. It's a down payment on your eternal privilege. Your destiny is to live in the presence of God forever, treasuring him above all else, completely unsullied by sin or any wrongdoing. And your privilege is to get started enjoying that right now. So the more you increase in the sanctuary mind, the greater is going to be your joy in practicing godliness and knowing the Lord. And I would say lastly, I would exhort you to, as I've called it, practice the presence in the sanctuary community. Now, I know I ran a risk using a phrase like practice the presence. It just sounds a little mystical, a little hokey. I don't mean it in any kind of mystical way, but it's a very true reality that we as believers in Jesus Christ, we have and we live in the presence of God, received by him through Christ. But there is something more to that idea than simply that God is with you wherever you go. That's a terribly man-centered way of thinking about what the Bible is teaching. It's not The point is not, well, God's always with me, whatever I do. No, no. The point is, we get to be with him together. We gather in his presence. The special presence of God is in the assembly of his people. The presence of God in the Old Testament sanctuary is fulfilled in Christ and in the temple he's building, the church, and in the assembly of the saints. God is building that. Jesus is building that. There is a very real sense in which you can only draw near to God, to the presence of God in Christ, in the church, in assembly. Because here's where he has located himself. Not in the building, but in the assembly. Do you understand? That's why Revelation 1.20 has this vision that John got of Jesus, this glorious figure, standing in the midst of these lampstands, and when he explains the imagery of the vision he saw, it's that Jesus is standing in the midst of the churches. He's in the middle of his people, just like God was in the midst of Israel. That's, that's the fulfillment. We gather to come to him. And when Jesus threatened to take a lampstand away, he was threatening to cast a church down and make it no church at all because there's a presence of God in Christ that's in the assembly of his people. That's why the book of Hebrews is able to talk about us drawing near to the throne of grace. That's not just reflecting on how I once got saved. That's a practice that we do together, drawing near together to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. That's why Hebrews chapter 10 can 
talk about us having confidence to enter the holy place and encouraging us to draw near with a true heart and not neglect meeting together. He's connecting those things, meeting together. Together we draw near to the throne of grace. Together we draw near to the presence of God. We come to the holy place together. And of course, you know, it is in this context that the word of God is held forth for us. It's proclaimed to us. It's explained to us so that we get our minds renewed and we get our perspective shaped and we increasingly discover what the psalmist discovered, namely that our treasure is God himself in Christ. Our inheritance is God himself in Christ, our eternal Destiny is God himself in Christ. And we don't need any other inheritance. We don't want any other portion because the nearness of God is our good. My brothers, my sisters, I ask you, is it not good news that God is good to Israel and that the nearness of God in Christ is our good? There's your good. I pray God give us the grace to have our minds renewed as we draw near so that with every passing day we are able to say with the psalmist more and more, whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you I desire nothing on earth. Let's pray.